Welcome to Cornerstone Church of Parker and our Sunday service webcast, which is connecting you to God's Word anywhere over the internet. We're glad you're joining our webcast today and pray that God will minister to you as we share His good news in Christ Jesus. And now, with a message from God's Word, here's our speaker for today. You guys are probably wondering what I have a suitcase up here for. Well, it's for an object lesson here. And you'll understand in just a a moment. I'm actually going to open it. Perfect. And also, that's right there. Well, we are in a series titled Unstoppable. It's a series we started in in November as we are continuing to move through the the Bible. We we finished up the the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we started into Acts, and we're in a series looking at the unstoppable movement of God's Spirit as He birthed the church and then continued to move through them to fulfill Jesus' mission in Acts 1.8, to take the gospel from Jerusalem into Judea and to Samaria and then onto the ends of the earth. And so we looked at five of eight sermons so far. Today we come to the sixth one, and it has to do with dealing with disagreements. And see, the church has had some incredible momentum. They had a lot of good things going for them. They had moved out of that general... Uh, region of Judea, through Samaria, along the coast, and then up into Asia Minor, into a place called Antioch uh, of Syria. And some really amazing things were happening, but they encountered uh, some, uh, an, an issue that caused a major disagreement between Jewish and Gentile Christians. And so we'll look at that in a few uh, moments. We'll come back to that thought. But for now, I want to start out with this, this idea of packing for a trip. Okay, and that's what the suitcase is here. For all of us have had to pack for a trip at some time in our lives. And when we do, we are wise to pack the most important things, things we might consider essential to that trip. We pack them first, right? First things first. Because if you put in all the second and third things first, you end up with no room for the most important things. So <clears throat> when you pack, you put in essentials right? And then if you have room, maybe some non-essentials. But the, the question is, as I thought about this, is like, what, um, is that mine? Yeah, thank you. The, thank you, Greg. The question is, how do we discern the difference between what is essential and what is non-essential for a trip? I bet if I asked every one of you to quickly make a list of everything you would consider essential for a trip, like maybe just inside the United States here, um, just a quick trip you're going on, and you made your list, and then you compared it to other people, you would, we would probably find a few things on everybody's list, like clothes, right? You, everybody packs clothes when they go on a trip. But what type of clothes, there would be some variants, right? So while everybody considers like a, a, a jacket, some pants, shirts, underwear, socks, and shoes to be Basically, the most important things, everybody's going to bring those things. Uh, things like, uh, other things like swimming trunks, snow pants, hiking boots might not make everybody's list. Not everybody's going to consider them essential. Do you guys, are you following me? Okay. So now take this one step further and imagine that someone else is going to pack your suitcase. And some of you just shudder. You just shudder at that thought. 
you're like, oh, I can't, I can't do that, right? And you already can see how that would lead to some disagreements because someone might come in and say, you know, swimming trunks are, and the snow pants and hiking boots are essential. And you're like, no, they're not. You know, they're not essential. And you could see how you would start to have a disagreement. I mean, it might lead to an all-out fisticuffs, right? There might be, might be a little bit of a brawl and some angry words said because of what is you consider essential versus someone else. And so you probably can kind of see where I'm going with this already. And, or you're sitting here and you're wondering, well, what does this have to do with anything spiritual or my walk with the Lord? Well, this sort of thing happens all the time in Christian circles. We have a theological suitcase, if you will, each and every one of us do, and we pack inside of it uh, things that we consider essential for our faith. And we have a tendency at times to push our essentials on other people. And so, yes, there are things that are truly essential for every Christian, as we will see today, okay? But some other things are not so, okay? They're more personal preference, if, if, uh, uh, if you would call them that. And so, how do we know what, um, what is actually essential? What is worth fighting for, and how should we approach things that are not essential. And so this is exactly where the Christians in Acts chapter 15 found themselves. You had two groups of people, Jewish and Gentile believers, I believe both with good motives, both trying to fulfill the the mission Jesus gave them in Acts chapter 1-8, and they're both trying to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But as they did, the Jewish Christians looked at the Gentiles and said, hey, um, in addition to uh, salvation by faith, that's essential. But in addition to that, um, you need to also follow the law. That's essential. And so they were coming and putting uh, a couple things into the Gentile suitcases and saying, hey, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to do those things too. And it led to a a pretty heated uh, disagreement. So how uh, did they work through it? That's what we want to learn from their experience um, because that will, will help us as we encounter disagreements with other Christians. So turn with me to Acts chapter 15, if you will, and we're going to be moving through verses 1 through 35, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually not going to take very long at all. So Acts chapter 15, and while you're turning there, let me pass on uh, my f- first uh, piece of important advice about disagreements and arguing. And it's not original with me, but I thought it was really good. Someone once said, never argue with an idiot. They will only bring you down to their level and beat you with experience. So I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. The Bible talks about never arguing with a fool, and I think there's, there's uh, a lot to that. Okay, Acts chapter 15. Uh, let's look at it together. And just so you know, usually I hold a Bible when I preach, but today, just to the nature of, of my talk and too many things in my hands, uh, I have my scriptures here, okay? I always like holding a Bible. I think it's important to do that, but I have them printed today. Okay, so let's look at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 uh, and 2. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea, those are the, 
the Jewish Christians, they arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised, there's the essential according to them, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Remember, Paul and Barnabas were also Jewish, and Paul was the creme de la creme. He was the elite of all of the elite. He probably was going to take over and, and be the leader of, of the, the Pharisees, um, the, the most uh, religious uh, elite of the Jewish culture. And, and he had, after his conversion, he looked at all that stuff and he said, this is not essential anymore. This is not important. I count it all as dung, he said. I, I let it all go just so I can know, know Christ. And so they got into an argument, all right? And so the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, that's who was involved. But the argument was about whether or not they needed to follow the law. And so the Jewish Christians, again, I have to assume good motives. I really think they came to the Gentile Christians and looked at the culture that these Gentile Christians were, were living in, a very idolatrous culture. And, and they said, listen, it will benefit you. It will help you live a clean life. The dietary restrictions, the, the other restrictions and separating yourselves from different things, it will help you make you more, more holy, essentially. And so, but they, that's, I think that was really their motive. Um, but the Gentile Christians felt like the Jewish Christians' direction was more of a hindrance than a help to their faith. And so to them, following the law uh, did not belong in their, their theological suitcase. You know, it was a non-essential, right? And so they, they wanted to take it out. They thought that, that God's acceptance was based only on faith in Christ. And so they, they had it out. They, they kept arguing. It says vehemently. That means it was a very strong heated argument. So who was right and how did they work through their disagreement? Well, that's where we continue. Look at the next part of verse 2 and 3. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some, lo some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way to visit believers. They told them much to everyone's joy that the Gentiles too were being converted. And so the very first thing that they did was they consulted a common authority. Basically, they went to arbitration, right? And, and if you have had any business school training or you, that you find that interesting, like I, I've learned in, in business school, arbitration is, is what happens. Actually, the place it came from is baseball. Did you know that? It really is a, a strongly used in baseball. When a, a player, a free agent, and his, his, uh, his team can't agree on a contract, they go to arbitration, and basically, the arbitrator has the final say, and both sides must agree. And so when two parties come to arbitration, it is very wise for them to offer their most reasonable case. They don't want to come into the arbitrator with an extreme option, because they know that the arbitrator is looking to find some sort of middle ground, and they'll probably disregard that extreme. And so both parties come. They offer their reasonable case to this common authority. And that's exactly what the Jewish and the Gentile believers did. They both respected the decision of the Jerusalem council, the, the apostles. These are the original apostles, 11 of the original apostles, plus, 
Matthias, the one that was replaced Judas, and then other elders. And so when they couldn't sort it out among themselves, they went to someone that they both respected. Let's keep reading. Verse 4 and 5. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. And so you see here, each side is stating their case. They're presenting their opinion to the arbitrator, to the Jerusalem council. And it's here that we see the issue in greater depth. We see that to the Jewish believers, having a right relationship with God was not just by faith. They certainly ascribe to that because we are told that they are Christians, they are followers of Christ, but they said it's faith plus. Salvation is faith plus circumcision plus the law of Moses. You, you, must be, to, you must do those things to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas were like, no, I, I don't think so. I don't think that that is a, an essential thing. So what did they do? Well, the next thing is that the authorities convened and they then stated their conclusion. Let's, let's look at the, verse 6. It says, So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, we, I underline that in my notes because if, it, if everybody in the apostles and elders agreed, it would have been a short discussion, right? It would have been an easy thing, like, oh, we already know how we feel about this. Evidently, they did not. And so even among the apostles and the elders, there was some discussion, they, they were wondering on both sides. Finally, after this long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you, know all that God, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. He's stating, this is my calling. Um, and this God confirmed this to me. Uh, verse 8, God knows people's hearts. That's a very, very good sentence. If you underline in your Bible, you should do that. Underline, God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He's saying, listen, I was there. I heard them speak in tongues just like we did. And if God gives them the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues, then he continues, he made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. They must be saved. And all of this happened apart from the law. They weren't circumcised. They didn't do anything any religious ritual to earn this. They didn't follow the dietary restrictions, etc. None of this happened. He cleansed their hearts through faith. So why, verse 10, why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We couldn't follow the law, so why should we make them, he's saying. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. I would underline that or highlight that in your Bible. And so uh, Peter shares, and then Paul and Barnabas share. They were apostles as well. And so they uh, go ahead and share. Look at verse 12. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told, the miraculous, uh, told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And when they had finished, James stood and said... Now, this, just a little side note here. Usually the last person to speak at one of these assemblies was the one in charge. 
And so a lot of people think Peter was the leader of the church. That's kind of a common thing. I tend to think that James was. James was the leader of the church. He was the last to speak here at the Jerusalem Council. So he stood and he said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take, them, to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted, giving proof from Scripture. He reads from, or he quotes Amos 9, 11, and 12, which says, Afterwards I will return, this is God speaking, and restore the fallen house of David. I will re- rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. Remember 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and that none would perish. And this is a foreshadowing of that. And so James continues, my judgment is that, there it is again, my judgment, he's probably the leader, is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of uh, strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So let's look at this as a whole. How did the Jerusalem Council ultimately come to make a decision about what should be in our theological suitcase and what should not be? Well, first thing they considered was experiential evidence. Peter stood and said, listen, I saw them baptized with the Holy Spirit. We already gave that argument. Then Paul and Barnabas stand up and they say, God is doing signs and wonders and miraculous things among the Gentiles. Why would he do that if, they, if he did not approve of them and of their salvation? All of these things, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the cleansing of their hearts through faith, the miraculous signs and wonders... It is all happening apart from the law. So if it's not broke, why fix it? Right? That's essentially what they're saying. And then the second, so they look at experiential evidence. The second thing, uh, the second thing is scriptural evidence. James, he says, listen, all these things that the, the Gentile Christians are experiencing, the scriptures predict, predicted that this would happen. There's evidence in scriptures that this, they're on the right track. And so, uh, essentially, that sealed the deal, right? The scriptural evidence sealed the deal. And so, the, their conclusion was the law, following the law and circumcision and whatnot, was not essential. Even though it was not necessarily bad, you know, and it, and it helped the Jewish believers in their faith, it wasn't essential for all Christians, okay? And so, they said that does not belong in the theological suitcase of every Christian. They kind of, they set that out to the side. Now, they gave a conclusion that, that says, instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from a couple things. Look at verse 20 with me again. Instead, we should tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. Why specifically those things? That's a question you should ask yourself if you are studying this. Why those things? Well, we've got to remember, where are these Gentile believers living? And what is it like around them, right? The culture around these Gentile believers, which is basically everybody that's not Jewish, 
right? It, it lives in a very loose, very idolatrous culture where all of those practices are very much associated with idolatry. Sexual immorality um, was, a, was a huge part of idol worship. It was, um, they had temple prostitutes, both male and female, and there was all sorts of various uh, sexual practices. Every, every, every uh, base sexual urge, basically, could, could be fulfilled. Um, all sorts of, of awful, awful uh, practices in that way. But then also, the, the meat of strangled animals and consuming blood. That, uh, uh, if you strangle an animal, essentially you keep its blood inside of it. You don't, like, drain it before you eat the meat. And so that was an idolatrous practice because it was believed that, that the blood was the food of demons. And if you ate blood or meat with lots of blood in it, okay, that you could cooperate with demons. That was the belief. And that was why these idol worshipers would do that. They would eat blood. They would actually sometimes drain the blood and have it in a pool. Like they would eat the animal and the blood would be right there and they would pretend or visualize that the demon was right next to them also eating that. And so this, you can kind of see why, essentially, the, the Jerusalem Council is saying, you know, if you stay away from these things, it will help you maintain your own salvation by kind of separating from these practices, and it will also help you maintain your witness to those people that are around you, worshiping idols and doing these things, right? And so it was a very uh, useful uh, piece of advice to them. And so first thing we need to do is look at this actionable insight. What is the big takeaway from all of this? Well, the first thing is this, that all people are saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Peter said that. And that regardless of physical differences, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, God cleanses everyone's hearts through faith in Jesus. There is no faith plus. There's only faith. Faith in Jesus. Every single one of us are saved. We have a right relationship with God, not because we are circumcised or because we follow some sort of religious instruction or rituals, but only because we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was more than a man, as I preached in a previous sermon, that he was the Savior of the world, uh, and that he died and and rose again to forgive us of our sins. How many of you believe that? Amen. How many of you are glad that these other things aren't required? I, I know I am. Okay, and so it's only faith. That is the beginning of the essentials that should be in our, in our theological suitcase. Um, and so at the same time as answering what is essential or the start of what is essential, we also start to identify things that are not essential. Things like, uh, let me see here, what do I have in mind? Worship style. Okay. To a lot of Christians, worship style is, is really, really super essential, right? A specific worship style, whether it's traditional or contemporary. We just have to remember that what is traditional now is contemporary when it first came out, right? Pretty soon they're going to be saying, shout to the Lord's a hymn. That's 30 years ago, right? I remember singing that as a teenager, right? So worship style, okay? Um, denomination. I kind of grew up 
in a denomination, not necessarily the denomination, it was just the way I was raised. I certainly don't think this way now. But it was almost like other denominations weren't Christians. And I've heard other people say that too. It was like I couldn't be, almost like I couldn't be friends with a Baptist or a Reformed person. And it later, like I visited as an adult, I visited several different churches, and I actually found out that we have a whole lot in common, and there's a whole lot of really good preachers and churches out there that we just believe slightly different, uh, especially about like speaking in tongues in church. That was the main thing. Almost everybody believed that the Holy Spirit is essential to Christian living. They just kind of disagreed about whether or not we should have it uh, speaking in tongues in, in church. But uh, other than that and maybe worship style, I saw a lot of good preachers and a lot of really good people doing good things. Culture. You know, when my, my mom and uh, dad grew up and my mother and father-in-law, they were telling me about how playing cards, any cards, skip bow, was a, was a taboo, right? It was evil. And they kind of grew up in a very legalistic time where stuff like that was very looked down upon. They couldn't go to movies. Like, you know what? You can't go see Winnie the Pooh or in the movie theater. I mean, come on, right? And so culture is a big deal. Christians argue all the time about culture, okay, and whatnot. Let's see. Uh, Money. Can a Christian be rich? You know, that's silly, okay? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's pretty well off. Okay, I don't think that that's an issue for him. But uh, we look at uh, that scripture the, that money is the root of all kinds of evil, and we just think it well, money is evil. That's not the truth. Okay, and so people argue all the time about about money. They put that in there. Ah, this is kind of a hot button in Christian circles right now. Um, Marriage is one man plus one woman. That, my friends, is essential. That goes in the bin. I can't slice it any other way. I read in Scripture several different, different times. To me, the progressive view is silly. I don't know how you can read it, change it around. It's just pretty straightforward all throughout the Old and New Testament. So um, that's an essential thing. Uh, marital, faithfulness, marital faithfulness is important. I ha- happen to come across a Netflix special that talks about primary partners and secondary partners. And I thought, this is how the world thinks. Oh, she's my primary partner, but we both have like secondary partners as well. And I'm like, you know, I don't, that's just not helpful. That's not helpful to raising families and certainly not God honoring. God's pretty clear about uh, adultery and fornication and whatnot. Uh, Sanctity of life is very important, okay? Very important to, and that's pretty clear in Scripture as well. So we look at things like the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Okay, a lot of people want to copy and paste and cut things out. And so that just leads to all sorts of issues. And so we have things that are essential, things that are non-essential. We could go on with a few, there's other things as well. But I just wanted to get, are you following what I'm saying? There's certain things that need to be in every Christian's suitcase and certain things that are more like preference, right? That we tend to kind of like sneak in. And then we think, well, if I have it, you should have it too. Because look how much it helps me, right? And it probably, probably does. Um, I really love the, the statement. It's, it's not obviously not original. And, and I don't know that anybody really knows who first said it. In essentials, unity 
in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity, right? And I, I, really, I really like that. In essentials unity, all Christians, let's be together on the, on the things like that. In non-essentials liberty, like give each other some wiggle room for different thoughts on things, right? Uh, and then in all things charity, in every interaction, let love be put first, right? Just because you like hymns and I like contemporary doesn't mean that we can't be on the same team, essentially. That's, uh, the, the main thing is that we don't allow endless bickering about non-essentials to keep us from fulfilling Jesus' mission in Acts 1.8. He told us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And for some churches, some Christians, these types of things, they're fighting more with each other than they are against the enemy, against the devil, and against evil in general. And so I kind of look at arguing about non, uh, whether non-essentials are essential is kind of like a couple of dog owners who are arguing about whose pet is smarter. You ever hear one of those arguments? I mean, the one guy is saying, my dog is so smart that every morning he waits for the paper boy to come around. He tips the kid, and he brings me the paper and, along with my morning coffee. And the second dog owner says, I know. He says, well, how do you know? Well, my dog told me. This dog is smarter, right? It's kind of like that. So in summary, working through disagreements about what is essential and what is not essential sometimes involves finding a common authority. I say sometimes uh, finding a common authority to act as an arbitrator because sometimes a, one of the parties, they'll pick an arbitrator that they already know sides with them you know, and so that's not, not, not good. They need somebody that's more, more neutral and committed with an objective point of view. But so it does sometimes uh, involve finding a common authority. Um, but it always involves referencing scripture. It always involves looking for experiential evidence that shows how God is demonstrating his approval, right? Do you agree with that? It always involves ref- referencing scripture. Otherwise, then my opinion it's just as good as yours, right? We need to reference scripture and see what it says. And then look for ways that God is showing his approval. Okay, so we talked about some essential things. So how does this apply to you? What are some specific ways that you can apply this? The first thing is this. Good intentions that produce bad results should be abandoned. I believe that Jewish Christians came with good intentions, but it was producing bad results in the Gentiles' lives. It's kind of, I mean, there's all sorts. I'm an economics guy. I love economics. And one of the first things that came to my mind was the rent control, okay? Rent control is something, and forgive me if you're on a different side of this, okay? But rent control, like there's study after study that shows how the intent is good. It's, the idea is if we keep the rent low, uh, artificially low, then um, low-income families can afford that particular housing. But what it does, the, the result is that it takes away the margin of whoever owns that property. It takes away their incentive to keep that property up and well-groomed and whatnot. And so what happens is even though the price is low and those people can live there, the property basically falls apart. And so they end up living in squalor. And, and so rent control is very well intended, but it has bad results, okay? And, and so 
these Jewish Christians who were coming and saying, hey, um, by the way, uh, you need to be circumcised and you need to follow the law. It was well intended, but it had negative results in the Gentiles' lives. And so the Jerusalem council basically said, you need to change this, right? It's just faith. It's nothing else. Don't add anything to it, right? Now, with that said, your faith makes it possible. Remember the intent of this. What was their intent? Clean living, holiness, godliness, right? All good things. That was their intent, okay? And so with that said, your faith, which is very essential... Your faith should make it possible for God's grace to make you more like Jesus. Your faith makes it possible for God's grace to make you more like Jesus. It means that your life should naturally and more progressively begin to stand in contrast to the lives of unbelievers, just as Christ's own life stood in contrast to the, to the, the world around him. He interacted with people differently than others did, right? And his choices reflected godly values, right? So therefore, if you profess to be a Christian and yet there's no discernible difference between your life and the life of an unbeliever, then one of two things are true. The first is you're either stifling the change God's grace wants to make in your life. God's basically coming to you and saying, hey, you know, I'd like you to be more faithful, more self-controlled. I'd like you to be more humble, more meek, more gentle. He's trying to make more loving, more joyful. He wants to make changes in your life, but you're pushing him back and you're stifling him and therefore you, you still look like an unbeliever in how you interact. So that's the first option. The second option is your faith is not genuine, right? Because genuine faith produces a change in your life. Grace, God's grace begins to change you. Now, I know that second option sounds harsh, but we've got to remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually, actually, I really love that he put that in there, actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. And so faith in Christ does not give you a license to sin. Faith in Christ does not give you a license to sin. And genuine faith will lead to a discernible difference between you and the world. And isn't this the essence of the Jerusalem Council's decision? Remember what they told the Gentile believers to abstain from? Things that make you look like you're still an idolater. Don't eat blood. Don't participate in their sexually immoral practices. Stay away. These things will help you stay saved and help you be a witness to others. Does, am I making sense? Okay, so here's a couple things for you to consider. The next time you have a disagreement with another Christian, what is one specific thing you can do to handle the situation more wisely? I think the answer to that is, think about where the issue is. Is it in the suitcase or out? Because if it's out, if it's just a preference, then is it really worth arguing about? And should you maybe be focusing on what you have in common instead of what you have different, right? Again, even things like denominational differences, right? I mean, 
I have a lot in common with most of the other evangelical de uh, denominations, right? We can agree. We can work together, okay? All right. The second, how can you make your faith more intentionally about Jesus and less about things that might get in the way? Some of us are just, we, we really know what we believe about all of this stuff, and, and we just let others know, <laughs> right? We're really good at letting them know what we think and what we believe. And so um, how, is, how can we make it more about Jesus and less about all the other things in Christianity? Do you see what I mean? How can we make it more about him, about the cross? What did Paul say? When I came to you, I determined not to know anything but Christ and him crucified. He didn't come in and say, okay, well, what's your worship style? Oh, you're still singing that song. Oh, well, you know, I don't know. I, you know, your growth trend just dipped, you know. And uh, what, what denomination are you? I, I can't minister here if you're not in my denomination. You know, he didn't come in. He just says, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he kind of let people pick some of these other preferences for themselves, okay? And so you and I, need, we need to be careful not to impose our passion for particular practices or preferences on other people. I mean, the Jewish believers were so passionate about these things. They believed so strongly that these things were going to help the Gentile believers in their faith that they traveled all the way from Jerusalem to Antioch on their own dime to tell them so, right? That would be like me going all the way. Where, how far away would that be like to Dallas, to tell all the people, the church in Dallas, that they should do certain things, right? That's, that's just very, it's a lot of passion, right? They went on their own dime, and yet the Jerusalem council said, listen, you need to, you need to slow your roll and, and kind of let your preferences be your preferences in that, in that way. So look at verse 22. Come back to scriptures. Let's see how this wrapped up. So to confirm this decision to the Gentile believers, we read in Acts 15, 22, that the council chose two men, Judas and Silas. Where did you hear Silas? Where do you hear about him again? He travels with Paul later on, right? He travels with Paul. So Judas and Silas went as council delegates. They were probably elders, I imagine. And they went to Antioch and personally read the council's letter for all the people there to hear. Notice in verse 28, look at that. They say in the letter, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, why would they say that? I think they said that. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit because they wanted both the Jewish and the Gentile believers to know that their decision was inspired and motivated by the Holy Spirit. And so I think the fact that it, the message, if you read on, it was received with great joy. Look at the results. Great joy. It encouraged the believers um, it led to peace, and it led to strengthening their faith. I think all of those results confirm the fact that the Holy Spirit was, in fact, uh, inspiring this decision. And so this is our last takeaway here. When we experience disagreements with other believers, we would do well to consult and just invite the Holy Spirit into that situation, right? You can tell a whole lot about the other party and your own heart, if when one or both of you says, hey, can we just pray about this? You know, because I really value this relationship and I, I, I want God's involvement. If one says, I ain't praying about it, well then you know right, right away where their heart is, right? 
But if they say, okay, let's pray about it. And you remember, the Holy Spirit helps us have peace with one another. And so when the result is peace, when the result is a strengthening of faith and encouragement and great joy, we know we're on the right track, right? The fruit of the decision shows us the, the quality of the decision, right? Cool. All right, so let's come back to the suitcase example. What is this all about today? Listen, if you and I are really passionate about fulfilling Christ's mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, um, as we interact with other Christians, because we can't do it on our own, we are going to encounter things. Uh, we're going to have some disagreements here and there about what should be in the suitcase and about how things should get done, right? The methodology of fulfilling this mission. We're going to disagree. But when we disagree, if we can remember how these early Christians worked through it, how they, they involved a, a common authority, how they consulted uh, scripture and looked at uh, experiential evidence, and then they, they prayed about it, and they looked at the results. If we can keep those things in mind, I think we're going to work through them just fine and maintain a peace and keep the mission moving forward because isn't that really what's most important? Is, is it important for you or I to be right? Is it, more important that, is it more important for us to be right about these things than it is for the mission to move forward? Absolutely not. You know, it's not about being right. It's about seeing people saved, right? And lives changed. So stand with me. Let's pray today. Father, we just come before you in Jesus' name. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this example and, and just helping us understand what is normal. It's normal to disagree. It's normal to have conflict. Lord, we're, we're, we're strong people. We have passions and we all want to work and fulfill that mission, God. So I pray, Lord, just over our congregation and over the people here and over the other congregations in Parker too, Lord, that just that we would be united around those essential things, God, that we would let those non-essentials just this kind of slide off and that we'd have liberty with one another and we would focus on, on, on love and loving you, loving one another, loving this community, God. We just thank you for your word. And I pray a blessing over every family, every person that's here today. Go with them, give them peace. God, just begin to speak to them as they just think about this uh, word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you guys. Have a tremendous afternoon. If you want to stick around for a few minutes, help us uh, finish down, uh, tearing down some Christmas decorations. Please just come up to the front. It won't take that long. I think John has been working on it a lot already. We thank you for listening to this Sunday service webcast from Cornerstone Church of Parker in Parker, Colorado. We hope that his truth has enriched your life and inspires you to greater works in God's kingdom. We invite you to worship with us in our Sunday morning service or join in our other ministry events posted on cornerstonechurchofparker.org. Cornerstone Church, built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and connecting people to God, each other, and to our world.